Thank you, Hunter and Melissa and Becky. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. If you're, in th- if you're three years old, all the way through third grade, you can slip out now to our children's church. This evening for our Christmas Eve service, we will not be offering a nursery or children's church as it's a special family time together. We do have a children's church this morning, invest in our kids in that way. The rest of us are turning to Ephesians chapter 2. My Christmas series this year, as we bring it to a close this morning, has been walking through Isaiah chapter 9 and focusing specifically on verse 6. I'll read verses 2 through 7 for us this morning. Isaiah prophesies and says this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. You've multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you've broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a son, a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, meaning that he will rule. And then Isaiah prophesies four names that will be characteristic of this son. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We've walked through every name of Christ prophesied in Isaiah about the Christ child given to Christ at the moment of his incarnation And so this morning, we'll focus on that fourth name, Jesus, as our Prince of Peace. Let's pray, and we'll get into our sermon this morning. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would give eyes so we can see your word. If there's one here who's not a Christian, would you give them sight so they can see the kingdom of God? Would you breathe life into their dead soul? Would you give them faith that they may believe, and would they place their faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation? Would you give us comfort as we see your character displayed in the pages of Scripture this morning as we pray in the wonderful name of Jesus, our Prince of Peace. Amen. If there is one aspect of the Christmas season that the unsaved world really gets a hold of during this time... It's often the most quoted version, the most quoted portion, excuse me, of the angelic announcement, it's peace on earth. During this Christmas season, you hear it referenced in Christmas songs all the time from people who have no connection whatsoever with Christianity, no affinity towards the scriptures, and they'll say, let's pray for peace. Maybe they hint that you should find your own peace, that we are all in the search for peace, and thus during this Christmas season, let's usher in peace on earth. Specifically during this time in our worldwide landscape with the wars going on between Russia and Ukraine and the Middle East and and fighting raging all around us with what's going on on a worldwide scale, 
Maybe this is specifically on your heart this Christmas season. Peace is the ultimate goal of every single person. I think you can make that argument because even when people without Christ die and they're laid in the grave, the common term that's given to them is what? Rest in peace. And so even the grave reveals to us that it is the goal of every single person to find this peace. Where do we find this peace? There are all sorts of Christmas traditions that people have during this Christmas season. All sorts of movies that are so cheesy that you won't watch them any other time of year, but you just have to watch them every Christmas because it's just tradition. One such movie is A Charlie Brown Christmas, right? There's nothing, and I could be, don't email me if I'm wrong in this, all right? But I don't think there's anything literarily like significant about a Charlie Brown Christmas. There may be some undertones that I don't understand because I don't think deeply enough, okay? But I don't think there's some sort of literary significance to watching a Charlie Brown Christmas. But there's so many families every year who have nothing to do with peanuts. They won't read any cartoons. They don't even know the characters and yet they'll watch Charlie Brown Christmas, I love reading Peanuts. In fact, in one Peanuts cartoon, I distinctly remember Lucy says to Charlie Brown, as she most commonly does, I hate everything, I hate everybody, I hate the whole world. And Charlie Brown says to her, but I thought you said you had inner peace. And her reply is very memorable. I do have inner peace, but I still have outer obnoxiousness, right? Peace, this concept that we're, we're all searching for this inner peace in our lives. It seems like, if, if we look around us, it seems like it's the goal that everybody wants, but nobody has. You watch professional sports, and it's all about the next great achievement. Even during the Olympic season, you can see individuals who've dedicated their entire lives to accomplish one goal. They get that goal, whether it's a medal or maybe even a gold medal or maybe even a world record. And it still doesn't accomplish peace. We see it around us demonstrated during this season more than in any other season when the piles of Christmas presents come in. And all of us know, you never, ever go to Walmart or Target on December 26th and try to access customer service. Why? Because of all the returns. They get all the gifts, and and whoever gets them looks and goes, well, it wasn't exactly what I wanted, so do you mind taking it back and maybe getting me store credit, or, or maybe I can get something else. And so the return line is so long because it doesn't matter what presents you get or, or what you buy. It seems like This peace constantly eludes us, doesn't it? I mean, the 21st century poet and philosopher Mick Jagger put it this way. I can't get no satisfaction, right? Because I try and I try and I try and I try. Isn't that the echo of the world around us? We try... And yet it seems like this peace, this rest, this solace of heart 
that we want so badly never comes. Our passage reveals to us in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 that this peace that you're seeking comes from one source and one source only. Peace comes from Christ alone, and that is why he is called the Prince of Peace, or the Owner of Peace, or the Ruler of Peace. The one who owns this calmness of heart, this peace in your life that you desire so badly, it is stored up in the storehouse of heaven that Jesus sits on and rules over and gives out at his will. And so he is called the Prince of peace. The mystery that we find in the pages of Scripture and the message of Christmas is that true peace is not found by looking inside yourself. Peace will never be found by purchasing or receiving gifts. Lasting peace is never accomplished by striving for the best family relationships. True and lasting peace is found only in the person of Jesus Christ. As Melissa just sang, peace is possible because heaven has come down to us. As we think about this concept of peace this morning, let us ever be mindful that in the season of celebration, there are many who are, who are struggling with turmoil in their heart and in their soul. For some in our congregation, this is the first Christmas without that loved one or that spouse. It's the first Christmas without the kids. Praise the Lord, right? Or it's the first Christmas with that child. This Christmas might seem especially hard for you because all your friends seem to be celebrating with a spouse or significant other, yet God has still chosen you to celebrate alone. Maybe this year finances have been so tight that the Christmas you want or you were hoping to give your family isn't possible. Or maybe you have everything you want this Christmas. And you still feel like you're missing something. As we look at the lights and the bows and the smiles around us, without Christ, it's just, it's just wrapping paper over miserable hearts, isn't it? This passage is applicable to all of us this morning because it reminds us or reveals to you, maybe for the first time, that the answer that you're looking for is outside of yourself. It is actually outside of this world. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ. Before we look at this concept of peace and start applying it to ourselves, I'd like to ask the question, what is peace? Peace at its very core is not a feeling. A lot of people are searching for this feeling that they want of tranquility. And so when they don't find it in what they know, they search for it in what they don't know. Maybe it's some sort of um, a relationship that seems exotic to them. Or maybe it's drugs or alcohol or whatever it would be. They're searching for this inner sense of tranquility and they're saying, I'm looking for peace. But peace actually isn't a feeling and it isn't a state of mind. Yes, Peace produces feelings of wholeness. It can produce feelings of calm and tranquility. It can produce a heart that is still. 
But peace at its core isn't a feeling, it isn't a state of mind. Peace at its core is actually a recognition. It's a belief. It's a scripture in Romans chapter 6 would call it a reckoning. Reckon yourself. Believe yourself. Recognize something is true. And peace comes when you recognize a position of security or safety. Have the image running through my mind of someone who's running from perhaps a large animal and they slam the door behind them and the door locks and they finally can sit down. It's a recognition of a point of safety that brings with it all of these other emotions. Peace is a status, not a feeling. That security, that safety, that peace only comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so what I'd like to do is, I would like to think of peace this morning like a gem, maybe like a diamond that's cut with facets. And so what we're going to do is, we're going to take this idea of peace. So there are so many ways that we could look at this diamond. There's so many concepts, so many applications to this idea of peace. And I'd just like to bring three of them to your mind this morning. As we take that diamond of peace and we turn it and as facets come out, we're just going to focus on three. And the first one that I'd like to focus on this morning is positional peace, positional peace with God. Since peace only comes from Christ, And that status is given to you of peace. The first facet that we need to examine is how God, Jesus, God, as how Jesus gives you, as the Prince of Peace, a positional peace. That would be a status of peace. And we see that reflected. We'll get to Ephesians 2 here in just a minute. But we see that reflected all throughout the scripture with different terminology. We see it reflected with being dead, raised to life. We see it reflected with being far off and being brought near. We see it reflected with people being enemies of God and then friends of God, that there's a status that is changed from someone not being at peace to being at peace. And one of those references is found on the screen in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That justification is a legal term. It is a declaration of peace. It is saying you were guilty, now you are innocent. And so Paul reminds that church of Rome that there is peace that is offered in your status with God. But notice that this peace has a prerequisite to it. Everyone isn't born at peace with God. That is a declaration that is made by God the Father in the courtroom of heaven. And it is made because of the prerequisite of being justified. That means declared righteous, declared at peace, being declared at peace by faith. And so faith then is the bridge that we cross to get to Jesus. You say, how am I declared by faith? Do I have to somehow earn a basket of righteousness in heaven by doing good works? Do I have to, you know, do I have to raise the sum of my righteousness in heaven by praying or by giving money to the church? What is it? that makes God declare me innocent, righteous, to change that status. And Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 clearly tells us, as is mirrored through the entire scripture, 
that only comes by faith. Even in the Old Testament, we see that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Peace is found in the recognition that your position, your status has changed. Those whose status have not changed, those who do not have a positional peace with God through faith, but instead have a positional judgment by God through unbelief. Those are the hearts that are stirred, that are seeking God because of of the drawing hand of God, that are under oppression because of their sin, that are constantly seeking this peace in other ways. Friend, if you're here and you believe that you can earn God's favor with your works, there is no more miserable person. Because God's standard isn't good, it's perfect. And so you can try your whole life to do that and you will always fall short. And so you will continually have no peace. And what God offers through the Prince of Peace, through Jesus Christ, is a status change. We see this reflected most clearly in Scripture in Ephesians chapter 2. So I'd like you to look at your Scriptures. You've turned there. I'd like you to look at Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 13 as we see this incredible passage that brings this concept to the forefront in an expanded way like no other passage we have in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 2, look down at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, once again, he's the prince, he's the owner, he's the source. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Many of you have family members who live in different cities or different states. And this Christmas season, they have been brought near to you, whether for good or ill, they are here, right? And there was some means by which they traveled here. And that could have been by car, it could have been by plane, it probably wasn't by boat, right? But if there was some other means of travel for your loved ones to travel to you that were far off to be brought near to you. You can name that, that mode of, trans, of transportation, of, uh, that, that mode in which they traveled. And God says, listen, when you're born, you are far off. And the only mode of transportation to get you near to God is Jesus Christ. I remember being on a missions trip to Australia, which is about as far away as you can go. The, the plane ride there, just one leg of it was 16 hours long. And so we landed in Sydney and we're doing ministry in Australia. And I remember it was morning in Australia and it was nighttime for the kids. So I was on a call or a FaceTime call with the kids and explaining to them that I was, uh, that I was in Australia. It was a long way away. And one of the kids asked me, how long does it take to drive there? And you have to explain to them, well, you can't. It's not that... It's not that it would take you a long time. It's that it's impossible. I mean, you could try, right? And and you could really think your car is going to make it. 
And in fact, even if you have a floating car, you may make it part of the way, but you're going to run out of gas, okay? And so you can try to drive there, and for, for a child's mind, they don't comprehend that idea. And for the unsaved mind, as they try to get to God, they're going to say, but I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this. And you say, no, no, that's not possible. It's not as though you haven't done enough. It's that you're, you're trying the wrong thing. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, we see that those have, who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's the only possible way, as we saw last week, in the federal headship of Christ as our everlasting Father. Look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace. Listen carefully. Jesus doesn't give you peace. He is your peace. Who has made us both one. And has broken down the wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. So making peace. And that he might reconcile to himself both God and one body through the cross. Jesus brings the peace to your life. He is the one who gives you access to the Father. He is your peace. Look at the end of verse 16. Killing the hostility. The whole picture of the gospel is that if you are unsaved, you are an enemy of God. You are an object of God's wrath. There is nothing that you can do to gain God's favor at all because God requires actions of faith and with unbelief there is no faith. Inside of a relationship with God as we offer sacrifices of worship and a life pleasing to God through faith. Thus we can exude good works once the Holy Spirit is present inside of us. But an unsaved person can't do that. They're an enemy of God. And what Jesus did on the cross is he killed the hostility and brought the unsaved to Christ our position changed from being distant to being close. Our position changed from being hostile to being unified. What God does through the blood of Christ is that he changes the status of those who are enemies of God to being friends of God. In France on June 28, 1919, the Treaty of Versailles was signed, which began the process of ending one of the most terrible wars the world has ever known in World War I and the trench warfare and the, the inhumane conditions, just a terrible, terrible war. Later on, there was an armistice that actually brought peace and a complete end to the war. It was signed on November 11th, 1919, as finally the Allied powers against Germany came to a complete, complete peace, a signing of peace. And the declaration, I believe the signing was at 6 or 7 a.m., but the declaration of peace and an end of the war came at 11. And that really is a fascinating concept if you think about it, because at 10.59, the entire world was at war, and at 11.01, the world was at peace. It's an amazing concept to think about, because with this one document, all of a sudden, peace was declared. But because of the lack of technology and because 
of, of, uh, of the long time that it took to, to communicate this peace and even the lack of trust among the soldiers, battles continued to rage for weeks and weeks and weeks in North Africa that even though there was a positional peace that was there, battles continued to rage. And so in our lives as believers, though we have a positional peace with God, the flesh wars with the spirit, and we find that we are declared righteous before God, thus we have access to the Father in Romans 5, though for a time battles may still rage. Positional peace with God. We see this reflected also in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile or at war to God, for it does not submit to God's law. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And what God does is he comes in and he changes that status from enemy to friend. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, thus we have positional peace. As we take that diamond of peace and we see that facet of positional peace come out, we then turn it and we see the internal peace that is granted in this life through our positional peace. It's a, it's a reflection, it is a result of the positional peace that we have. We see Jesus tell his disciples about this in John chapter 14 and verse 27. He says, peace I leave with you. What is that peace that he's leaving if you know anything about John 14, it's that chapter where Jesus is prophesying that he's going to leave. And he says, hey, listen, I'm, I'm about to go away to be with the Father. And where I'm going, you can't go, but, but one day you'll be there. And, and, and they, the disciples kind of, you know, kind of freak out a little bit. And they're like, whoa, what do you mean you're leaving? We don't want you to go. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I am leaving you with the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, this peace I give you, it's actually the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life that brings the inner peace. The world around us is constantly offering cheap and ineffective alternatives for the peace that God offers. And so Jesus says, not as the world gives do I give you. If you find yourself on the same path of peace as the world, you find yourself on a losing journey. You will never find your goal. I heard the testimony this week of a former Wicca uh, witch who had come to Christ and it was interesting to hear her testimony as she gave testimony of the fact that she would go on these retreats to try to bring up the dead and to speak to the spirits and to gain peace in their heart. And, and she said, we would go on these retreats with all of my friends who were involved in this dark, magic world of Satan. And she said, I would look around me and all around me was, was people who were absolutely miserable. And they carried their misery with them and it was darkness and it was hopeless. And the secret that we all had is that we would look over at our Christian friends and their families and their joy and their smile and we wanted it. We wanted what they had. But we wanted to get it our own way. And the message that Jesus has is there is no other way than the blood of Christ. It's not like the world's peace. 
The world will tell you that the source of peace is focusing on gratifying yourself or amassing treasure for yourself. And Jesus says the pathway to peace is through faith in Christ that results in a life of self-sacrifice and laying up treasures in heaven and giving to others. Jesus says it's the presence of God that he leaves with them that will bring peace. And so we see it is the Holy Spirit that brings us peace inside of the sufferings in our life. Amy Carmichael was a missionary hero. When I say that, I don't mean that she was superhuman. I mean she was just like you and just like me. She just loved God more than any of us. And she gave her life for the gospel's sake on the mission fields of India. Her mission was specifically to the abused and outcast people, sharing Christ with them. But if you read her, any biographies on her life, or if you go and you read the letters that she would write back to her friends from the mission field in the 1900s, you would see that she suffered with severe, constant pain. She had a a sickness called neuralgia, which is chronic fatigue, migraines, as the nerve endings don't stop firing. She suffered a spine injury and was bedridden for the last 20 years of her life. And here's a letter that she wrote to one of her friends to encourage them when she could not physically leave her house. Here's what she said. Blessed are the single-hearted, for they shall enjoy much peace. If you stay your soul on God, nothing can keep you from that clearness of spirit, which is life and peace. In that stillness, you know what his will is. She had a positional peace that she recognized that fueled this peace in her heart because she knew that she was right with God. John Wesley wrote a poem later turned into a hymn, I rest beneath almighty shade, My griefs expire, my troubles cease. Thou, Lord, on whom my soul is stayed, will keep me still in perfect peace. Augustine wrote in his confessions, For thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until we find rest in thee. At the end of John 14 and verse 27, we see that this peace gives us two things. When you recognize your position before God is righteous, you are brought to a place of peace and not trouble and not afraid. That word trouble means stirred. If you think you have to earn God's favor, you're constantly working for something you can never attain. And so the position of righteousness before God, that God loves you the same on your worst day as he does your best day because you are in Christ, brings you to a point of rest. But not only that, look at that very last phrase in John 14, 27 on the screen. Neither let them be afraid. Teenagers, listen carefully. I would highly encourage you to have the right heroes in your life. Your life will reflect the type of people that you pursue. In my opinion, some of your greatest heroes need to be those who are long gone, Find stories from the past of men and women who stood for Christ and find out what motivated them to live for God. Find out what motivated their heart and then you pursue the same thing. I've used illustrations in the past of 
My greatest heroes in church history would be found in the mid-1500s in the group of the Marian martyrs when Bloody Mary ascends to the throne and starts persecuting the Protestants. She starts persecuting the Christians. She's calling out the deacons. She's calling out the pastors. And she leverages the Anglican church and the Catholic church to call out those who are preaching salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so you read the stories like John Rogers, one of my favorites, the first Marian martyr, who was marched past his family and his child, who he never even met singing hymns as he was led to the stake. I'd like to introduce you to two more heroes that you should have. Their names are Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. 1555. Two pastors called out for preaching the gospel. They would not stop. So they were in prison together, finding encouragement in in singing together and speaking the word together and remembering their sermons together. The announcement went out that both Ridley and Latimer would be executed on the same day. And so Ridley's brother comes comes to the cell as they had split the two men up and says, Nicholas, I I want to spend the night with you so you can have peace. This one night and you can sleep well in company before your execution. And Ridley declines his offer and replies to him that he meant to go to bed early and to sleep as quietly as he's ever slept in his life because through his God he he had peace. And he could rest in the everlasting arms of the Lord to meet his need. The next morning, the guards found both Ridley and Latimer well-rested from a good night's sleep. They were walked down Broad Street in Oxford, England. Really uniquely, they were both chained to the same pyre back to back and given the opportunity to, to be given last words. Nicholas Ridley lifts up his voice and gives a 15-minute sermon about why The Church of England and all of England needed to bow to Christ in repentance and faith. As the flames were lit, Hugh Latimer turned to Ridley and said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. That's the kind of heroes you need, guys. Legend has it, we don't know if it's true, but onlookers would say it was that Nicholas Ridley turned around and kissed the pyre as that instrument of death on the hand, by the hands of those serving Satan would be the very instrument that God would use to bring him to glory. How can someone like that be at such peace? Because they recognize that the worst thing that anyone could ever do to you would be to send you into the arms of our Savior more quickly than you expected. That nothing on this earth could harm you. That everything that tries to work against you can only be a tool used by your Creator and your Father to deepen your faith. And so you find peace. When we come to the recognition that our status with God has changed to become his friend, to be one with Christ, 
that drives us to recognize the peace in the midst of trials and persecution, peace in the midst of illness, peace in the midst of physical suffering. And it causes us to look forward to that last facet as we take this diamond of peace. And we're just examining three parts of it. There are so many more, but that third facet that we would see would be our final peace in eternity. That all of these are inexpressibly linked together. That without one, you do not have the other. 1 Thessalonians 5 gives us such comfort. Now may the God of peace, there it is again, the source, the owner, the one who gives that peace, may he himself sanctify you completely. That God who began a work in you at salvation, he cannot stop. He has promised that, was, that what was begun at the moment of salvation, he will bring to completion on the day of Christ. And thus you can come with hope, dear friend, who's coming to the sunset years in your life, and you look forward to those years with, with a little bit of fear. For you say, when the illness comes, when the hardships comes, will, will Christ still hold me fast? And we we come to the promise that he who begun a good work in you cannot let you go. And he promises to sanctify you completely, that your whole spirit and soul and body, everything about you, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That as you long for heaven, what do you long for most? It's tempting as physical creatures as God intended us to be, that perhaps the thing we long for most in our life is no more aches in the morning, as what used to take five seconds to get out of bed may take closer to five minutes. The stretches, the creaks and the groans, that knee that works so well that just won't do what you tell it to do anymore. The constant back pain, the illness that you have just been diagnosed with, as many in our church have, who you know you won't carry it with it, you, you won't carry it with you to heaven, but you will carry it with you to the grave. And your heart wants to know, is there peace even then? What do you long for most to be at peace? Friend, you know what we should long for? Aren't you sick of fighting sin? Aren't you so tired of being angry, struggling with lust, struggling with materialism, struggling with that desire for alcohol, whatever, whatever it is in your life, those various, those, in James chapter 1, those designer sinful desires that are a part of your flesh, aren't you sick and tired of that? That you fight and you fight and you fight and you fight, and as you fight, the fight becomes easier, but it never goes away, and you fight and you fight and you fight, and you long for that day when sin will be no more. And the greatest comfort that God gives you is that there is coming a day in that rest in eternity and that peace where that sin struggle will be no more. That your sanctification will be complete. That you will be completely holy.
Revelation 21.4, he'll wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. Friend, when we look realistically at our condition, we recognize that we will never be without pain until heaven. God has not promised you a life free of pain on this earth, for he has not called you to your best life now. He has called you to your best life then. And the rest and the promise that we have that brings us peace is that one day everything wrong will be made right. And one day everything broken will be made whole. And one day those relationships through Christ, which have been put on pause because our loved ones are there waiting for us, those relationships will be renewed. And that peace will come when we see Christ and he gives us that final peace because he is the Prince of Peace. He is the owner. He is the ruler. And in that day, we will all be granted final peace. That final peace is not promised for those who do not come through the blood of Christ. In fact, it is guaranteed not to be given to those who are in unbelief. For there only lies for them eternal torment, but for the child of God, eternal peace. I want you to look with me at verse 24 on the screen, and we'll end with this. What what is it about God that guarantees our peace? Can we read verse 24 together out loud? It's on the screen. Let's read this together. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Friend, the faithfulness of God is our rock. And were it not for that ending of this passage, we could not be assured peace. But because Christ is faithful, because we worship him in his consistency and his faithfulness and his mercies that are new every morning, we can find rest and peace because of God's faithfulness as we worship Christ as the Prince of Peace. Where are you this morning, friend? Are you a a believer who's lost your way? You're here this morning, maybe you didn't even want to come, but someone else brought you. And you need to be renewed in your relationship. You need a revival of heart from the Spirit to bring that close relationship with Christ once again, to bring that peace of God, which you knew at salvation, but need to be reminded of. Or maybe you're here and you're, you're not a Christian. And in your conscience, you can feel the Father pulling your heart. You can feel that peace calling to you. And so would you give up? And would you believe and rest in the Prince of Peace? May we worship with that in mind for the Christmas season. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.